You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Do you think I could rock a Viking linen shirt in the field this season? Welcome to episode 15 of a Life in Ruins podcast. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Connor, the face tattoo Jonan, and David Howe. Our guest tonight is Dr. <laughs> Brian Schroeder, who is currently the director of the Center for Big Bend Studies at Sol Ross University in Alpine, Texas, the scholastic powerhouse of West Texas. <laughs> He received his undergraduate and master's degree from the University of Wyoming and received his PhD from the University of Montana. Connor is extra excited for Brian to be on the show as Brian was one of the graduate assistants for his field school and helped him fall in love with archaeology. How cute. Brian has extensive experience in Wyoming archaeology, high altitude archaeology, and now extensive work in cave excavations in West Texas. He is now working on some super interesting research stemming from his excavations in Texas. We are so excited to have him on the podcast and to have him embarrass Connor. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Schroeder. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. Of course. If you don't mind, uh, we'll start off by just uh, introducing, I mean, we had that intro part, um, but introducing who you are and what you do as the director of the Center for Big Bend Studies. Well, I guess... My name is Brian Schroeder, as you said. Uh, I'm the current director for the Center for Big Ben Studies. I have only been the director for about a little over two weeks now, so it's a new role for me. But in that role, I craft the research that we do here. I'm sort of the de facto head of the department, but I'm the only one who teaches, so I just have to keep myself in check. And, and uh, which isn't always easy to do. And uh, I'm the lead fundraiser, and we're pretty unique in that we have access to huge private ranches, and we're allowed to research whatever we want on those ranches. So we have literally 13,000 years of prehistory that we can kind of do whatever we want with. So I'm try to keep that in check because. I also have to fundraise. So there's a financial side and a research side and trying to make those two meet is really my day to day. All right. So it's, you've, you figured that all out in two weeks, I'm assuming. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> We're on the road to success right now. Uh, no, there's, there's uh, I have a small staff and uh, I have to keep them happy and they have their own pet interests and, I'm not from Texas, and there's a lot of, uh, let's say... Xenophobia? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sort of an outsider to Texas archaeology, and so um, for the most part, everybody's very accommodating, but there's still I still feel like I'm approached with like a little bit of suspicion. Like, well, you're not Texan, so... <laughs> Uh. <laughs> my my partner is from Texas and she's always talking about Texas, Texas, Texas. And I'm like, what is so special about a failed state than part of a failed rebellion? Yeah. I, well, even in Texas, there's a incredible and this is like in no way like meant to be condescending or anything. But there's a special and fierce love for West Texas in particular, but there's an even more diehard love for far West Texas. And this is a place where. Very 
few people are from, but then they move here and it becomes theirs and they're like fiercely dependent. They're like fiercely, not dependent, but fiercely like protective of this place, which is kind of interesting. And it can make things rewarding. <laughs> interesting. Like yeah. far west Texas being like New Mexico, basically. Well, it, it, <laughs> they, they would never claim that. Like we were just talking with, I was just talking with some folks recently that aren't from here, and West Texas seems to stop in Odessa, in Midland, and then two hour we're two hours south of that, and we're our own thing. That's really the most famous for the art community in Marfa, and it's it's got huge installations from Donald Judd and that he made it really, really famous. So there's a huge art community, but other than that, I mean, that's why people are here. So yeah. I just pictured Josh Brolin sitting on his porch, spitting into something. <laughs> it's actually filmed on the ranch that I do most of my research. Oh, really? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not an, in- it's not an inappropriate stereotype to have. <laughs> Speaking of uh, ranches, you're a Wyoming boy? Yeah. You want to tell us a little about that? Yeah, I was raised in Wyoming and Casper. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I really never had any intention of leaving. Definitely didn't see myself moving to Texas. But I guess just like that Texans are fiercely protective of far west Texas. I'm the same way with Wyoming, but unlike, I guess the love for Texas. I don't really know what I'm defending in Wyoming. <laughs> I guess I love the scenery and the archaeology. And uh, it was a great place to be raised, a great place to get interested in archaeology, but I don't think I'd ever want to, I don't think I'd want to live there full time. Yeah. I remember you telling me about some of your childhood because you said that you, you and your father would go hunting, right? And you wouldn't be super good at the hunting part because you were looking for artifacts. Yeah. I never, I was a lousy hunter. My dad got so upset at me every single time we went because, uh, he, there's one time he pointed out a bunch of deer and said, do you see him? And I was like, I I don't, but I see that arrowhead right there (laughs) pointing at it. And he was, we're hunting. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's an arrowhead right there so that's really cool <laughs> oh uh yeah i i mean we that's all i did that's like as a kid i will absolutely admit it i was a hardcore surface collector in wyoming i don't have a n- big collection by any means but uh that was definitely my pastime and made me really bad at hiking and hunting and all the things that you're dad wants you <laughs> <laughs> your face is just constantly at the ground yeah. yeah 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 you're constantly behind all your friends when you're backpacking and like no i'm coming i'm coming i'm coming there's just a sight back here <laughs> oh i'm just out of breath that's why i'm way in the back but, <laughs> but yeah i was doing that uh so you you went to i guess your undergrad and masters at uw right yeah i did both of those at the university of wyoming awesome um, yeah, I did. Uh, I came from um, no one. I thought no one in my family had gone to college, so uh, I started at the community college in Casper and knew I wanted to do archaeology. And then, kind of, did two years at Casper College, and then I thought I would just keep doing the cultural resource management stuff. And then I never really had any end goal. Like I never had 
definitely didn't have a PhD in mind, didn't really have grad school in mind. It just kind of kept evolving as I kind of kept going through cultural resource management. Now, uh, since you spent a, quite some time in Wyoming, do you have a, a Bob Kelly impression? <laughs> uh, my Bob Kelly impression would be abject silence. <laughs> I just remember sitting there and staring at the hamster picture in his office <laughs> while he sat there and looked out the window, and I thought I had just insulted the man. Every time I had a question, I thought I just said the dumbest thing in the world, and he would just sit there and he would just stare out the window and kind of play with his beard and then stare at that hamster. <laughs> and then he would look at me <laughs> and go, yes, I think you should do <laughs> so, so for our listeners, uh, Robert L. Kelly is a famous archaeologist. It, it's really thoughtful when he speaks and like really thinks about his answer. And there's kind of this running joke in, of his students of you get to know all the books on his bookshelf while you wait for him to respond for that reason is you just ask him something and he just sits there like what Dr. Schroeder was saying. just He just strokes his beard and looks out the window or looks up and you just kind of sit there for like a minute or two like, what the hell did I get myself into? And you're just kind of staring off, looking at the books on his shelf or the hamster picture. He's like mostly he, from Lord of the Rings. So he just like takes forever to say something. <laughs> it's it's amazing. I got really familiar with the picture of his kids on his desk because I would always like kind of like look over look over there. But yeah, uh, yeah. God, I love Bob. I miss him. But not coming from that background, I always just thought I just insulted him. I just wasted. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll take it back. I can leave. I can I can get out of here. <laughs> I was sitting in his office one time trying to ask him about like my thesis. It was like my first year there. Yeah, and I didn't know like that's what he did. So he just like said, I asked him something like, do you think that's a good idea? And then he like went, hmm, turned around, looked out the window and there was like 30 seconds to a minute of just awkward silence. And then he turns back around and looks at me and he's like, what were we talking about? And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is he brutal. He hates me. <laughs> he did that to me once too and said, look at this car down here. This car is stuck. And I was like, oh. Okay, I can just leave. I'll just leave. <laughs> uh, there was, there was, oh, I was this TA my first semester at Wyoming for my master's. And uh, I was at the classroom building and he, he went to the anthro department. But, you know, there's that cafe there and I went and got a sandwich. And I was walking back, the uh, water main had busted. And Bob was just standing there, like staring at it with this big grin on his face. I was like, what's up, Dr. Kelly? He goes, I don't think they meant to do that. And he's just <laughs> smiling. And I was like, Okay, it just kind of kept walking, and he was just fascinated. It was amazing. Oh, Bob Kelly, the anarchist, apparently. <laughs> Secretly. Secretly. <laughs> Speaking of University of Wyoming, um, you also did speaking of anarchy. yeah, and anarchy. Um, you also did some field work with Dr. Todd Cervell at the University of Wyoming. Is that correct? Yes. You, so you his like famous site, Dr. Cervell, that he published on his dissertation on, I think, or at least part of it, um, is Barger Gulch. And you actually worked there. You you had a had a good time there, I hear. <laughs> yeah, I spent uh, uh, I spent I believe thirty days there and helped he's Dr. Matty O'Brien now. I think he's in California. 
Yeah, he's at Chico. Yeah, Chico. And helped them set up the site. And it was the first five days where I'd never dug with a university. So it was my first time out. And Todd asked me, because I had done a lot of consulting work up to that point, and Todd asked me, have you ever dug with a trowel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I have. I have one. I own one. <laughs> it was a it was a very interesting site. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of the first cohort for PhD students at Wyoming were there. Patrick Mullen was there. That was interesting, and he ended up. I think he ended up dying in a car crash in Alaska, and oh. it was just a really. Yeah, it was a really, it was a chaotic field session, but everybody there is teaching somewhere now. I mean, it was really, yeah, it was, I don't know. But there's a lot of stories there, but I don't really want to get into it or incriminate it. Yeah, I, I heard the, um, the after hours entertainment was um, especially good. Uh, especially good. Yes, that's a fantastic way of putting it. It was, it was always entertaining. Todd had some, uh, very bizarre games. He really likes golfing in the prairie. Uh, there was a lot of golf. And then there was horseshoes, but then it blended into, I can't even remember what they called it, but it was just, you take the horseshoes and he'd have these like courses, golf like courses lined out and he would throw the horseshoes like you were golfing and he would just keep throwing the horseshoes until you got to the hole and people obviously threw out their shoulders all the time. <laughs> it sounds like a rancher version of Frisbee golf. It, like, it well, really was. Frisbees. It was it, uh, I don't remember what he called it. Uh, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was chaos. And we didn't find any archeology. span We found nothing, which was great for Todd because uh, he had, planned it he thought that they were central they thought he thought that they were false structures so we he picked areas that should have been outside of the structures and they were which was fantastic for him but yeah we didn't we didn't find a little heart-wrenching and or yeah questioning of your everybody was promised balsam points (laughs) yeah we got to hear about the years of amazing balsam stuff they had found and i think I think we found like 15 flakes that summer. So <laughs> morale and was low. As quick as possible, can you explain like what Barger Gulch was, like why it's a famous site? Uh, it's a single occupation Folsom site, and it's really shallowly shallowly buried. So it's all Folsom, and it's parked on top of a chert formation, a troublesome chert formation. So you get a really good expression of Folsom stuff there. And there seems to be Folsom structures there, just like the Mountaineer site. So you have Folsom activity areas associated with probably structures and the hearth had eroded away. So um, they were using that based off of burn lithics. So some really cool stuff happening there and kind of an innovative way to figure it out. So cool. Yeah. That's not right. <laughs> And for our listeners, Folsom is an archaeological culture. It's it's the second or third oldest, depending on which you know department you're in, <laughs> in the country. And it was actually the first, and it's based on projectile points, spear points. There's a beautiful flute in the middle of them. And it was actually what confirmed that people were here uh, with megafauna because they were found and associated with some extinct bison antiguous, which are very large bison. And it kind of revolutionized how we thought of peopling in the Americas for its time. And since then, we've found 
Clovis, um, which is also a different projectile point. And then there are these Western stem points that are the cause of some fiery debates at SAAs now. <laughs> but with that, it looks like we have a couple angry ranchers who are looking for shoes for their horses. Uh, we're going to get this wrapped up and we'll be back with segment two here in a moment. That could have been better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to tie it back, dude. God damn it. Welcome back to segment two of episode 15 of a Life in Ruins podcast. For the audience that might not be aware, Wyoming, and the reason why a lot of us go there for graduate school, is it's like a giant just Jurassic Park of archaeology and prehistory. Like the whole state is just littered with archaeology and just geographic features. So it's just an awesome place to do archaeology. Connor has a question for Brian because they used to work together in the field, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for him, of course. So yeah. when uh, you had mentioned earlier that you uh, you would go hunting and kind of with your father and you weren't very good at it because you liked looking for artifacts. And you were nearby kind of the site that you did your your master's research when you were doing that, right? Uh, yeah, I was looking for a site related to what I was doing my master's research on. Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool. So could um, you explain what the Shirley Basin site is in 10 words yeah. or less? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, really cool. Is that, is that That's accurate. Enough? Okay. It's, uh, the Shirley Basin site, it's, it's a huge, huge prehistoric camp. I don't even know what the final limits of it ended up being. But what's really neat about it in particular is that on a small part of this giant site that takes up acres, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a monster site littered with tons of occupational debris, are these coarse structures that they're, they're circular, some are, some are square, but they're, they're really stacked and they're really unique in the Wyoming landscape. There's a lot of single core stone circles that a lot of people think are teepee rings. And I would say that, you know, some are, some aren't, but this in particular, these are these really funky coarse things. And the site, the reason I, well, we were really near it when I was hunting with my dad as a kid. And I didn't know, I honestly didn't know that. And when I was doing my master's research, I did it on defensive sites in Wyoming, uh, um, really late period contact period, indigenous fortifications. And uh, this site, the Shirley Basin Lodge site had been always talked about as being, because of these walls, uh, a part of that fortification sites in Wyoming. And I was trying to find it and the location data for it was wrong. So I kind of gave up and said, you know what, I haven't been back to that site that we went to, that we found when, you know, we were hunting, when I was hunting with my dad and I went back there and accidentally stumbled across the Shirley Basin site and had the pictures with me and was like, no way. This is, ex this is exactly what I was looking for. So it was really serendipitous. And, uh, and it ended up a very, I think I ended up working there for uh, a long time, uh, at least over five years. Yeah. A lot of field sessions, at least, at least of one of mine, uh, one of my uh, field school sessions was there and you weren't joking. This is a, it was like crazy to walk through. And when you're describing the courses, courses are, for folks who might not know, are uh, are just different stacks of rocks. Uh, so one course being just a single stack of rocks. Multiple courses are these kind of, um, they almost look like larger white man's fires. Is that accurate? 
<laughs> I was, yeah, I would say they look like they almost look like Puebloan structures, except without masonry. They're these stacked houses, stone houses. And that's what it ended up. It, that site was actually recorded by uh, uh, Dr. Frizen in 1967. And that's what they called them stone houses. They look like rectangular stone houses, circular. So the Shirley Basin site uh, was excavated over a July 4th weekend by Dr. Frizen. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was um, a long weekend, three days. And it was the first, it was the first collaborative effort from the amateur archaeological society, the Wyoming archaeological society and the office of the Wyoming state archaeologist. So it was one of the first things where they came together and it was brought to the attention of Dr. Frizen by a collector named Lou Stiege. And uh, yeah, they, they went out there over July 4th weekend and excavated they found 21 of those coursed structures and they dug 17 of them and said that they were going to keep three for future researchers. And when we went out there, part of our work was focused on exactly what happened because there are no notes for the site. And it was a little bit hard to figure out what they did because they stored the artifacts in the basement of the arts and science building. And there was a um, pipe burst and, all of the boxes melted together. So, so there's like zero context. Yeah, there was like zero. Everything just melted together. And it was like somebody went back and said, Makes my yeah, blood boil. yeah, this is what came from that one. And this is what came from that one. And there was like concrete nails and stuff. It's like they shoveled stuff into boxes. And so we were trying to part of part of why we were there when we went is to figure out if we could find anything left. Anything that was in, and I think we were successful. Oh yeah, yeah. We we found some things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you were also working with Dr. Richard Adams at High Rise Village in the Wind River Range. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yep. That's it. And I did a part of our another segment of our field school um, was spent up there. Um, This this site is like. 11,000 feet or 10,000 feet? It's 10,200 to 11,000 feet, yeah. Yeah, and it's this kind of similar arrangement as uh, as the Shirley Basin site. You have these kind of, they're less less obvious, less um, coursed um, yeah. than the Shirley Basin site. But you have this kind of large um, housing apartment complex almost at 11 or 10 to 11,000 feet. Yeah. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah, that is the that is the end of my thought. Um and that kind of those kind of similarities and your interest in high altitude archaeology kind of led into your dissertation, right? Yeah, my I mean the the sites are really similar and there's this pervasive idea especially in late in Wyoming archaeology about uh this stuff being part of the Shoshonean migration out of California. And that always intrigued me. And I mean, I was always taught it and I always thought, I mean, that's really neat that you could associate these artifacts with a specific ethnic group. And that's sort of what sparked everything. And 
I mean, there are obvious similarities in all of the tools and the structures at the two sites. I mean, there's real overlap. There's a lot of brownware pottery and the arrowheads they're making are the same. And a lot of the same stone tools show up. So I started thinking and my dissertation was very simple. Is this part of a seasonal migration where they use the lowlands like Shirley Basin for a portion of the year and high rise village represents the high altitude portion of this and Shirley Basin represents the like sort of the low lower elevation adaptation by this similar group was kind of how I saw the overlap, which is a nice idea but incredibly hard to prove is what I found out. <laughs> It's only separated by, and you said these sites are like how many miles apart from each other? They're, they're like 138 miles apart. So it's within theoretical kind of walking distance. And yeah. they, they, oh, I, I think that there's a horse component to it too. I think that those, I think those groups probably using the, I think even at high rise village that horse, if it wasn't involved, it was like the last throws of not using it for increased mobility because uh, there's the problem with high-rise village is that all the radiocarbon dates are really hard to get uh, there's just no way to really radiocarbon date that site because that alpine environment preserves stuff too well all of the wood they were burning is too old so you get really old dates and there's just no way to really figure out the temporal overlap of them so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we were. I think this is topical, and it might be a little late for it. But what, what didn't you post a map earlier, Carlton, about the horse kind of introduction? Yes, I did, Connor. I did that. I did that today. I am uh, this semester. I'm a research assistant for Dr. Will Taylor, and his thing is horses. He worked with Todd in Mongolia, Todd Servo, actually. Now he's at Boulder, and he like was like read this book. And gave me this big old book on uh, in Native American uh, bridles and saddles and stuff. And then one of those maps was uh, distribution of horses, which is not – I don't know sh- a, a thing <laughs> about horses that's out of my wheelhouse. So like, I'm just kind of learning all this stuff. But uh, the map, I am told, is not, is, is not like the, the mainstream or whatever, but it's – appears to actually be supported by current radiocarbon dates coming out of out of horse buns. But anyways, it shows horse distribution based on indigenous oral histories as well as European accounts and like it's it's multiple data used to and, and so basically why people are skeptical of this map is it shows horses earlier than previously thought. Now of course not earlier than 1492. That'd be freaking ridiculous. Right. Uh but it just kind of shows like yeah, you know, it wasn't be. really the pub yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it basically just shows so a lot of these tribes got horses earlier than we thought. And it wasn't just really the Pueblo revolts that really released them, but, you know, people lose stuff and it's, you know, when you have hundreds of horses, a couple kind of wander away. And, you know, during those trade networks back then, like the new, you know, all-terrain animal that shows up, it's going to get spread pretty quickly. And the relationships between tribes, like if you think Comanche and Shoshone, they're related right. to Pawnee or Rick or they're related, they're trading with their neighbors and their allies and their family. So like horses actually spread rather, rather quickly. Yeah. So yes, Connor, to answer your story, I shared a map today. <laughs> well, it says, um, I was reading that and it looked like it, it estimated like 1640 for the Eastern, Eastern Shoshone um, is what they have current or Eastern Shoshone and Comanche. Yeah. So, which is, I mean, 
And interesting. So this, I'm trying to think of one of the uh, radiocarbon dates. Do they fall in that kind of area, Brian? Are they a little? Yeah, Shirley Basin is that old, but the High Rise Village, the only date that's been rejected by everybody else who went up there was the date that dates to that period, which I think is the only date that's right. But I lost that debate. <laughs> so that that's that's a whole other story. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I mean, that's what I, I, I thought that there were a way to do it. And they just see really weird. You see different. I mean, you just see there's a huge amount of um, tiger chert up at high rise. And you see you start to see soapstone get moved around. And I think, as you know, soapstone bowls are incredibly heavy. So you're not lugging those around. You're you're, you're using something to move those around. And my thinking was that there were soapstone bowls down at high Shirley Basin, and there was a lot of the chert from the mountains at Shirley Basin uh, initially in the 60s, and we would find that stuff, but we did not find that stuff. <laughs> we found a whole nother conundrum, as it was. We, <laughs> it was an interesting. We did. Speaking of finding that stuff, did you did you go up into the mountains with Connor on his llama adventure? Was that I you? Did not Yama's go with David. the Connor's llama, llama adventure, but it wasn't because I didn't want to. <laughs> That's what he oh, says. Okay, I thought maybe that was you. <laughs> we did spend time in the mountains together at High Rise, obviously, um, being horse supported, which is like a whole other kind of fieldwork. Yes, <laughs> we did. Uh, we went to the Tetons too. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Romantic. Yeah. Some broke back mountain level archaeology going on. We we, we skipped we skipped the um um chairlift to the top. <laughs> Just two archaeologists yeah. in the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't find artifacts, but they found love. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's fun. Okay, uh, let's let's wrap this up and pump the brakes while we can, and I'll take it in session three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where do we go from here? <laughs> Welcome back. This is episode fifteen of a Life in Ruins podcast. Uh, we're ta- interviewing Dr. Brian Schroeder, and I want to start this section um, kind of talking about your current research while yeah. the giggling minstrels in the back keep giggling so you had texted me at some point telling me about something you had found in someone's house if you want to elaborate yeah uh i can give you a little back story to that too and bring bring you up there i got hired here to research on one of the ranches one of a large private ranch it's seventy thousand acres and uh the landowner has a large cave system and no professional archaeologist had ever been to that cave system but it's very obvious that it had been looted for no one knew how long. So my research goals were to sort of, one, figure out the history, see if there was anything in, left to do at the site because it looks, I mean, it looks like a moonscape. You can tell people have been digging it for decades. And it was one of the few sites in Texas that has a trinomial uh, especially in West Texas, it costs money. So not a lot of professionals get uh, registered the sites with the state of Texas. So this one had one. And that sort of led me down a rabbit hole where I 
ended up finding out that um, among very many stories that I could tell you, but one of the one that you're alluding to is there were four burials that were taken out of the cave, one in 1960 and then two in well, two in 1952, uh, one in 1960, and then one in 1968. And the one in 1968 ended up in a private collection. And that's, I ended up calling everybody in the phone book with that particular person's last name to see if I could find that individual. And I found them. And I ended up finding out that they had donated the human remains. And they thought, but one of the other collectors had kept them. And uh, the human remains are still in this private collection. And I still don't really know how to talk about it other than uh, <laughs> I relocated those human remains and they're in, they're in a fake paper mache cave behind a fake wall in a basically private house. And that's not where I thought this research in the ground would lead me. <laughs> I thought we would be, I thought we'd be doing our own research. And I certainly didn't think that we'd be tracking human burials into somebody's house. So, but I think that made it much more worthwhile. Uh, so part of that research was just figured like authenticating it, making sure it was associated with the site and then starting a dialogue with what the person's, like, what, are, what is your end goal with these remains? Yeah, what are your intentions? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like what are, what are, what are we doing here? And that's very much ongoing and, as you can imagine, pretty delicate. Yeah, let's put it lightly. (laughs) So they they eventually, you did get um, permission from this person to research, research the body or the remains, right? I got permission to initially come and look at them. They denied even owning them for about a year and a half. And... Uh, I would call once a month and just say, hey, look, I have paperwork that says that you have them. Do you have them? And uh, I got no every single time. And then I did my monthly call one time and they just said, you're not going to give up, are you? I was like, I'm not. Do you have them? And they said, yeah, yeah, I have them. And I was like, great. Can I come just see if it's what I think came out of the cave, because I had a picture of them in front of the cave, the remains. And I went up there and she didn't seem that interested in me seeing them for about an hour and a half. And I thought that, well, maybe this isn't going to happen. And then it sort of switched and she had mentioned that they were upstairs and they weren't, they were downstairs. And it's kind of a really weird it, I mean, beyond owning the remains, she herself feels a real, because they've owned them for over 50 years, she feels a real connection with these remains too. So they're Native American remains, and I was given access to them, but they're also part of this like family collection, and they feel like they've taken care of them really well for half a century. So... You have to also talk to that side of them, the equation, which was they, they don't they don't really teach you that in grad school. <laughs> no, I don't think yeah, there's a class a on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, you sort of got to I I didn't want to be judgmental because the landowner who owned the cave it was made it a paid to dig cave. For most of this history, you could 
he would charge a fee and you could come collect anything you wanted out of the cave. And that's 100% legal in Texas because of the private laws here. And we can sort of pass judgment on that. And I think we should, but you can't alienate them. If somebody had come to you in 1952, we're all archeologists and said, Hey, there's this cave on my land and you can dig dig it and whatever you find is yours. I don't know if in 1952 I would have said no. Now, finding human remains, I definitely wouldn't have kept them and made a fake cave and put them in my house. <laughs> I feel confident yeah. in that. But I don't know that I would have said no to that equation otherwise. So it, it it's a really sticky situation, and I sort of know what I want the end goal to be, and I would like to get them out of the collection, and I'd like to get them back into the cave and I'd like to do that in consultation with native groups. But at the same time, you sort of have to acknowledge that there's this, these private property rights here, which it's not a great situation. And maybe the compromise, whatever happens, I don't think it's going to be uh, a best case for any of us. So. Hmm. Yeah. For the audience listening, we talked about uh, NAGPRA a couple podcasts ago and maybe it's different in Texas, but in the rest of the country, it's highly frowned upon and more or less illegal to to keep human remains uh, in your private collection. It depends on it. State law varies, but either way, it, it's not it's not really ethical. It's also just weird. I mean, yeah, just weird. <laughs> like those belong. They're not you. You have a human body, like someone in your house. That's like it's just weird. Don't do that. I, <laughs> this is a this is a dry cave too, so they're fully fleshed. I mean, they're desiccated. Oh, uh, they have, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're worse. They're mummies. They're oh my there's god. There's four of them. Yeah, they're they have fingernails. They have hair. They're fully fleshed, which to me makes it even weirder. And the collectors that didn't want to keep it, they wanted to donate it to a museum in uh, San Antonio. The fact that they were so well preserved. What was I mean? It was the line in the sand for them. They were it. It really affected them, but not the person who owns it. And uh, she's very candid about talking about that. Um, so, so the museum was like, uh, "No, we don't want to." Well, no. That what actually happened was the the person lied. Uh, they gave it to a student. Well, there's actually two sets of remains, and. The one that we're talking about that's in a private collection, that one, the brothers just took it back with them and they kept it and passed it through the family. It's been through several generations of brothers and yeah, that one's that one's another thing. But there was another one, the one that was supposed to go to the Witty uh, in San Antonio, that one, the guy who said he would take it there and said he had the connection kept it. And then he trafficked it on the black market. He sold it out of the back of a shotgun magazine to a buyer in Palm Springs, California. And that person in Palm Springs, California got busted 10 years after buying it for uh, raising and taxidermying uh, exotic species. And the Game and Fish let a bust on his house. And when they busted, his, busted into his house, they saw a mummy in uh, what the coroner described as a terrarium. And they immediately called the cops and said, this is, this is 
creepy. This is this is a murder scene. That's some Florida shit. Yeah, yeah. And the (laughs) the the coroner figured out that it was a um, that was a prehistoric set of human remains, and it got brought back to Texas. And that one's actually in the University of Texas at Austin. But the other one's still in a private collection, and they're both they're both very delicate. And what's interesting, so my research that I'm doing now to tie this all together, I got access to them and those individuals are related after doing DNA. So they're related and there's, uh, because of radiocarbon dating, there's as much as 220 years between them and as little as 50 years, which means that uh, a generation of uh, matrilineally related hunter-gatherers were using this cave for at least 200 years. And so, I mean, from the research end, that's where we got. And now I'm still figuring out where to take that. That's, that's super insane. That's, I mean, that's, that's it, the craziest story I've heard in archaeology in a long time. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> wild. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not what I, I started the cave because I thought we would find some baskets. That's really what I was looking for. I really wanted to find some good perishable material and I wanted to, that's where I wanted to go. And I certainly didn't think that I would be talking to coroners in Riverside County, California. And yeah, a crazy thing. But I mean, at the same time, it was incredibly rewarding because they, no one would ever know. No one would ever tie those back. And at this no one would ever know that those human remains are from that cave. And now we can start this dialogue and it's awkward and it's cumbersome, but now, now we can do it. And I hope that ends somewhere. That's kind of a good middle ground for all of us. Yeah. And and it's, it's part of our profession and, and can be an unfortunate or good part of our profession that we're the middleman in this kind of yes no we're kind of the people who have to talk to private collection people who collect privately are looters and the actual native communities themselves we have to be that bridge because that's where we're placed ourselves and here in particular there i mean there's so much private land that you wouldn't know if uh i mean there there's there isn't that liaison without a professional archaeologist so we have to gain the trust of the landowner to get on the land which is difficult to do. And then once we do that, so this case in particular, then I had to gain the trust of a collector that talked to a different landowner that owns the land now. And that landowner is very pro-science, but the previous one wasn't. So they took it with a clear title from the landowner that they bought access to the cave with. And so you have to have that conversation. But then at the end of the day, we all know that those are native remains and there needs to be a native at the table. And that's a very delicate situation to get, gain the trust of the landowner too with everything. It's, it's, it's complex, but it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. Like you like a descendant community situation. Yeah. And yeah. And the end goal is to go back into the, the cave in a ceremony that's befitting of what, yes. what would be done for, um, their normal burial procedures or ceremonies. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to get them back in the cave and my, I mean, from a research standpoint, I feel like we've answered what we can answer at the cave right now. And, uh, I feel I have no problem 
walking away. I have no problem returning that to what it was. It was occupied for at least 6,000 years. And at the end of it, it very clearly became a burial cave. And I have no problem returning it to that. And walking away, I don't think the landowner has a problem with that. I mean, there's plenty of other stuff to do here. Uh, and there's plenty of other collections to look at. And I think that's where it kind of needs to go. But that's, you know, to be to be the final, hopefully the end to that story. But like you said, you don't know how that's going to end because of these balancing communities. Yeah, there, there's a lot of stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, they're only stakeholders because the law is in Texas is fucked. <laughs> at the end of the day it's like other states like colorado wyoming passed a law that's like you find graves period you leave them alone right you know and it's, it's unfortunate that you have to cater to the property owner and i mean like morally and ethically the whole situation as we've stated is just titanic level bullshittery <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it, the, the entire that that is definitely a good way of saying it. Uh, I mean, it's 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 incredibly complex, and yeah, I mean, here the way to do it would be to change the legislation, but here you're not going to do it because ninety five percent of the state is private. So, I don't agree with how uh, the law crafts it, but my hope is to start the dialogue and maybe appeal to people's morality (laughs) and and that that supersedes the law and that's how we get things done because at the end of the day they're not going to get in trouble there's no trigger for anything yeah as you've been talking i've been like frantically searching texas law regarding what the fuck is going on and like yeah even it's not just natives it's like anyone who's not on state or federal land it's so the, the quickest way to change it is to start digging up white people. Well, no, that's and, actually what the law is for. The law protects Civil War graves. That's what the law is written for. It'd be easy mm-hmm. to do an unmarked prehistoric burial. It'd be easy to exclude historic Native American graves and uh, prehistoric burials from it and keep c- Civil War cemeteries open. So what happens is the law triggers a Civil War – like. It doesn't say Civil War, but that's what it was for, to make sure that if your Civil War ancestors were buried on somebody else's private land, you could still have access to them. So that's um, why it opens That's why it opens up the law. But because of that, all this other stuff gets ensnared in it. It's like, it's like three or four words that need to be changed, and I think that could be done. I'll, I'll say that. I think it could be done. <laughs> Welcome to Texas, where you get 40 God. acres and a mule and some engine bones. <laughs> Change that one. Yeah. God. <laughs> Damn, the Confederacy. Thanks for coming on, Brian, and hopefully we have a conversation with you in the future where this is all solved in an appropriate manner, and maybe even Texas law has changed, but, you know. Let's just burn the fucking state down. Like, who needs Texas? Like, God damn them. They can't be their own country. They can't be part of a rebellion. Like, who needs it? Give it back to Mexico. I don't know if they treat bodies any better there, man. 
Uh, well, um, on that, be silent on all Build that. the wall, Texas. <laughs> oh man. Okay, but on that note, thank you, Brian, for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we just interviewed Dr. Brian Schroeder, who's the current director of the Center for Big Bend Studies at Sol Ross University in Alpine, Texas. This is the end of episode 15. We'll see you next time. Well, you won't see us. You'll listen to us. If you can't see us, it's a podcast. Yeah. Get it right. No comment. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So what's the difference between archaeology and grave robbing? Archaeology is when you dig up Indians. Grave robbing is when you dig up white people. (laughs) Brutal. I'm in a mood now. (laughs) All right. All right. Episode 15. See you guys soon. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.